Hello everyone and welcome to my Unorthodoxy podcast. My name is Duncan and I want to answer four questions here that have been asked by Zach. The first question is, if G.K. Chesterton were alive today, which aspects of today's world do you think would most interest him? The second question is, what is the value, if any, of seeing the news as it exists on television, social media and the like? Question three is, what is the proper way of understanding Darwinism in the context of Genesis? And the fourth question is, what is the significance of the term eucatastrophe? I'm going to answer the first three questions rather briefly, because I, I'd like to say a little bit more about that fourth question. I think it's the, the, well, it's the one that grabbed me the most. To the first question of what Chesterton would find most interesting in our time, the simple answer would be, pretty much all of it. Chesterton was interested in everything, really, so he would have found a way to put all of it into his work, especially that stuff that has some kind of cultural significance. When you read Chesterton today, especially the essays he wrote for newspapers, you will notice that much of what he says is strikingly pertinent to our time. In fact, sometimes it's difficult to imagine that he really lived a century ago. So I think he would have written about our social issues and our political squabbling and the loss of a rich theological imagination and how to recover that theological imagination. Would he have included references to pop culture, books and television series and podcasts? Probably. If you are interested in, in looking into Chesterton's take on his world and especially get a feel for how it is relevant to our time, there is a wonderful book printed by Ignatius Press called In Defense of Sanity. It's a collection of Chesterton's best essays. Very cool. You should check it out. Now for question two. What is the value, if any, of seeing the news as it exists on television, social media, and the like? To be honest, I don't see an enormous amount of value in how news is handled today, at least insofar as the main focus remains on news figures rather than on the ground. In fact, when the focus is merely on figures, I see news as profoundly corrupting of our view of the world. It can be, I think, spiritually detrimental. I've said it before and I will say it again, news has a distorting effect because it revolves around digging through the trash of the human household as if trash is all that said household actually produces. I would say that the only reason to look at the news, maybe the only thing that is valuable about looking at the news, is to get a sense of emerging patterns of human behavior and of meaning-making. So it's very well worth seeing how people try to make meaning of often disconnected events. This can help us to be aware of, that is to seek out what is being excluded or forgotten. So it's, it's helpful almost to see the news as the opposite of what is really happening. Where this is not done, the result is horrific decadence, a tendency to get embroiled in scandals especially. In St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, in the fourth chapter, he writes, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And I think this is excellent advice, especially for us, especially when the news is overwhelming and often very difficult to grapple with. So maybe curate your Twitter feeds 
to be more life-giving, for example, and spend significantly less time engaging with mass media than with real life and the business of learning to love well. We should really be pouring our energy into what is edifying. You don't have to stick your head into the sand, of course, but it is also helpful to be mindful of the proportions of things as they stand in relation to the highest good. What I have found is that the news tends to be profoundly distorting of the proportions of things to each other, the way that things relate to each other, and then, of course, to what is ultimately good. Then here are my thoughts on the third question. What is the proper way of understanding Darwinism in the context of Genesis? In all honesty, this probably needs far more attention than I will be able to give it here. My thought on this is that, in general, I find the strong oppositional rhetoric usually involved in dealing with the relationship between Darwinism and Genesis inevitably results in a parody of both Darwinism and creation theology. These are two different fields of meaning. So, while there is much that we can learn from evolutionary biology, we can't learn, despite what Richard Dawkins says about what a meaningful life would be in a Darwinist perspective. We can't even learn from Darwin what it means to be human, as Roger Scruton brilliantly tackles in his books on human nature and the soul of the world. And while we can learn a great deal about how we navigate meaning through forming and filling, as Genesis suggests, the creation story is a poem and not a scientific treatise, and we'll learn nothing about the precise structure of biological adaptations from it. To cut a very long story short, I suppose the very best way to tackle these things is to ask a very simple question. What are these two different paradigms about? What are they for? If we misunderstand the nature of anything, we will abuse it. So in a way, Zach's own question is its own answer. Zach asks how we should understand Darwinism in the context of Genesis. And I would say, well, the best way of understanding Darwinism is within the context of Genesis. Genesis asks and answers to some extent the question of how we find meaning in the world in relation to our creator. Darwinism is a very narrow lens that looks at very particular processes within the creation story. For the record, I do have problems with the Darwinist tendency to assert its own self-sufficiency, especially because it follows efficient causality without any thought to formal or final causality. I realize that that is a, a far too brief answer, uh, but I, ho I hope it gives some, some decent food for thought. So now on to the last question. What is the significance of the term eucatastrophe? I absolutely love the idea of a eucatastrophe. I have even been known to describe myself as a eucatastrophologist. At least I am an aspiring eucatastrophologist. So what does eucatastrophe even mean? Well, you can see it in the words that make up that word, namely catastrophe and the prefix eu. That little prefix makes all the difference, of course. Catastrophe is from the Greek word meaning overturning or sudden turn, which in turn comes from two Greek words, namely kata meaning down and strephein meaning to turn. And the prefix eu is the same one we have in eulogy, which broken up means good word, and eudaimonic, which means conducive to happiness. 
which is to say that a eucatastrophe refers to a sudden turn of events at the end of a story which ensures that the protagonist doesn't meet a predictably terrible end, but in fact somehow gets to have a happy ending. This idea comes from the famous mythmaker J.R.R. Tolkien, heavily informed by his Catholicism, of course. You can read Tolkien's take on this in his lovely 1947 essay on fairy stories. Tolkien refers to the incarnation of Christ as the eucatastrophe of human history and the resurrection of Christ as the eucatastrophe of the incarnation. So you can see here that there is this idea that there's a story on the go, any story really, and just when you think the story is about to end very badly, there is a surprising happy turn towards something not just good, but spectacularly good. So that's what eucatastrophe means, but the question is about its significance. Well, one way to look at this is to see this as inherent in the structure of most fairy tales. When we read that the characters, the good ones at least, live happily ever after. But another way to see this is that this is really in the structure of the story we live in. It is in the structure of reality itself and of our making sense of reality. The great question about life is whether it is a comedy or a tragedy, which is to say it's about whether it ends badly or well. Basically, in a tragedy, everyone gets what they deserve. In a comedy, they get what they need. Those are not necessarily the same things. Importantly, suffering is part of both comedy and tragedy. Awful things happen in both. But the ending is where it really counts. In a comedy, everything turns out all right. In a tragedy, everything turns out all wrong. As the joke goes, in a comedy, everyone gets married. In a tragedy, everyone gets murdered. Well, the Bible is a paradigm case of eucatastrophe in more senses than I can get into here. But the paradigm is that everything is always climbing towards the good, even when, paradoxically perhaps, it involves descending into entropy and hell. This is no simple progressivism. As far as I can tell, progressivist optimism is just as naive and stupid as conservative pessimism. This is somewhere between optimism and pessimism, somehow acknowledging and interweaving both. The Bible shows us a story where those who seek God, the highest good, are able to transcend even the worst that happens. It also shows that where there is rebellion against God, against the highest good, transcending the worst becomes impossible, apart from an act of grace, which of course would be a eucatastrophe. And well, the biblical narrative is also most definitely one of grace upon grace, that is, of gifts upon gifts. We can see death for sure, but resurrection follows death in almost all dimensions of human experience. Wounds heal, winter is followed by spring, a painful emotion is transformed into a beautiful piece of art or music. Now, think about the worst that happens to people. Sometimes, more often than we would like, the worst is often a plain catastrophe. Nothing about it seems to end in anything like redemption. I think of many people who have gone through traumas, sexual and physical abuse, for instance, only to be left scarred for life physically and psychologically far worse off. 
And when you think about such things, it is nearly impossible to think that eucatastrophe is really the right way of looking at things. But the Christian hope is not just that good things always come out of bad things. This is true. Of course, it is part of the Christian hope. Good things, often surprising things, can emerge from the ruins. Amazingly, as in the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, something can even emerge from nothing. The Christian hope is that we can live towards the good even when we have suffered immeasurably from our losses. In fact, we always want what is good, no matter how distorted our view of the good can become because of what has happened to us. Hope in Christian theology is not just some sort of wishful thinking. It is directly connected with action, with how we live. That is, it is connected with our capacity for receiving the courage needed to work towards the good. So, terrible things will happen. That is true. But eucatastrophe means that they don't get to have the last word ever. Some people think of eucatastrophe as a kind of deus ex machina dramatic device where an impossible problem is suddenly resolved in an impossible way. Moderns don't like how grace might intrude in that way. They want everything strictly logical. For moderns, death is death, not a step towards resurrection. The thing is, in their heart of hearts, no one really wants to believe that is true. And it is worth asking why that is, why we do not seem to find death acceptable in a merely obvious way. And so we get this idea, eucatastrophe, this perhaps insane idea that maybe, just maybe, everything that has gone wrong will come untrue, that maybe, just maybe, everything really does get to turn out okay in the end. Eucatastrophe means we get to hope for a happy ending. And it says that by faith we can accept that we all get to live happily ever after.